So I wasn't here last week, uh, I was in Mexico, but we had the wonderful Ted Chen off the news with us, and he gave us a really beautiful foundational theological uh, insight into the person of the Holy Spirit. And he actually came to introduce us into a new series, which we're going to be going through for the next weeks, about the person, about the power about the beauty of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I'm super excited about that. I'm super excited partly because I found out this week that churches across LA, totally independently of us, a lot of them have felt that God's been prompting them to do some teaching on the Holy Spirit. And so we've been totally not in that conversation, but we found out this week that lots of churches are doing it. And so that feels exciting. And so we're gonna be talking over the next weeks about like, do, do we really need to know the Holy Spirit? Isn't it all just a bit weird and odd? What difference does the Holy Spirit make to anything? Would it be best if we just did something else? So that's kind of, that's the kind of what I'm trying to work with. Um, but in order to introduce us, I'm gonna start somewhere a little bit different. So um, anyone uh, here into the Matrix films? Yeah, I like three of you. Uh, <laughs> I feel like you have to be of a certain age now to be into the Matrix films, which makes me feel extremely old. I think when the first Matrix films came out, I still wasn't quite old enough to fully appreciate their genius. But during the pandemic, we had a bit more time on our hands, Laura and I, in our evenings, and so we went back and we watched every single Matrix film. And they are amazing, right? Just in case you, just in case you don't, don't know what they're about, you're like the 1% of people on the planet who've never watched The Matrix, then, then this is basically the, the, a little tiny snippet. So the idea is that human beings live in a world which feels and looks a lot like turn of the millennium, uh, in uh, USA, and uh, they get on really well, except that what they're interacting with, what they touch, what they taste, what they smell, what they think is real, isn't actually real. Because what's actually happened is that robots have taken over the world, and they've taken all the human beings captive, and they've plugged them into this insane virtual reality AI kind of experience where this is all projected as reality. But in fact, that's not real because the real dystopian future has arrived and they're all in these kind of plugged in states. And there's this moment in the first film where one of the lead characters, Neo, Keanu Reeves, he has a choice. Will he take the blue pill, which will return him to this nirvana state of virtual reality that he's enjoyed his whole life? Or will he take the red pill? And if he takes the red pill, basically he's gonna wake up into this whole other reality that is going on behind the one that he thought was the truth. And it says like, do you wanna go down the rabbit hole? And the films are just genius and I love them. But one of the reasons I think that they, they caught hold so, so well is that they play to an idea which instinctively I think we as human beings know is actually true. Not that there's a dystopian future and robots have taken over the world and those things, but it actually the idea that there is something more. There's something more that exists out there. There's something more than the physics and the chemistry and the biology, the things even as you look around this morning, you're like, well, this is real because I have evidence that it, I can touch it and taste it and feel it. This is real. But we know, and human beings have always known, that there is something a little bit beyond this. And Christians have always held this as their central truth that there is something more. 
in 325 AD, when some of you were just adolescents, really, back then, the churches came together from all over the world, the leaders, to an ecumenical council. And they took the Bible in one hand and they said, how do we say what we believe to be true about God and the world? And this is the only statement, really, that's ever been written outside of the Bible, which is held by Protestants and Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox Church. Everybody holds this statement pretty much to be true. And it says this, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. That we believe as Christians that before this existed, this world, the one that we're touching today existed, there was God. God who was outside of our time and space and who created this beautiful world, who created human beings in his likeness. It says, we believe in God who has spoken through the prophets. We believe that there's a God who has spoken, interacted with us as human beings from outside our time and space, through prophetic writings, through scripture, through miraculous ways. They said, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, for us men and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. The Christians have said, yeah, there is a God who's outside of time and space, and in order to rescue us, in order to save us, in order to love us, he sent Jesus, his son, into our world, in human form. It says, for our sake, he, Jesus, was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death, was buried, and he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. We believe that it was Jesus who came from heaven to earth. It was the very mechanism by which the world could be saved. And we believe that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. The one day when Jesus returns for a second time, or when you or I die and we get to meet him before that, that there will be something in the future that's different again that there'll be a heavenly spiritual reality or a reconstructed earthly reality, if you think about it in that way, which is different. It's outside of our time and space, and it will have no end. That's what we believe. Around the world this morning, churches will say those exact words all over the world. But what I love about them is that they allude to the something more. There is something more. The fourth line of it says, I believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of things that are visible and things that are invisible. That there is something more. Whether you're a Christian or not, I bet deep down you kind of know, you might call it spirituality, you might call it all sorts of different things, but that there is another whole thing that's going on. When Paul is speaking to the early church, and they're having a really hard time. They've got the Romans on their backs. They've got Jews like giving them a hard time. And Paul says to them in Ephesians chapter 6, he said, this is what you need to know, church. The battle that you're in, the one that you feel, the things that tug on you, this isn't actually a battle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly world, in the heavenly realms that there is something going on in the spiritual realms that is good of God and his angels, that there's something going on in the spiritual realm that is bad, the devil, 
and his demonic forces. But those things that are behind the things we feel and we see, they're actually the real story. They're the things which give us the why behind so many of the things that we touch and we feel and we see around us. Now, the reason I'm giving you all that as an introduction is because the way that God gives to us, us, his followers, between his first coming Jesus and his second coming, whenever that will be, is he gives us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, who is part of God, the Fa- God, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the very way, it's the very means by which we get to navigate, communicate, experience the physical and the spiritual. It's the way that we get to journey between those two realities. It's the way that we get to connect those two realities in order that we get to see spiritual things happen in the physical, in order that we spiritually understand the physical things that are going on in our space. And that's what I want to talk to you about over the next weeks, because it's exciting. You don't look excited. (laughs) I'm hoping you will. But I'm not surprised that you don't look that excited, because... Not everybody is excited about the Holy Spirit. Maybe, I don't know what what it was like wherever you grew up, but when I was 11 years old, I got to go on my first ever youth camp. And I was remembering it this week because my son's just got back from his first ever youth camp. But my youth camp was not like the cool ones that everybody gets to go on in California where you go up the mountains and there's like rivers and lakes and like cool things to see. Like my youth camp was a church youth camp in a dark, dingy, wet, probably slightly moldy church hall in the back of some like housing area in England. And I went along, and it was about the time when, if you remember back to the 90s, that kind of era, when the Holy Spirit was really moving in power, Toronto blessing, stuff here in Southern California, things in Europe as well. And God was doing really big, mighty things. And sure enough, we turned up at this youth camp, and I put my, like, my, my bag on the bunk bed, and I went to the first evening meeting, and the leaders had all been praying before the meeting. But because as they'd sat and prayed, the Holy Spirit had started to move really powerfully on them. So much so that like, when we got to the start of the meeting, we sat there as these innocent 11-year-olds, and all the leaders were like laughing and crying and making weird noises. And some of them were lying on the floor doing strange things. And I was an 11-year-old boy, and they didn't explain anything, and I was freaked out. I was like, this is not the coloring and the drawing and the crafts and the sports thing that I thought, the Bible story stuff that I grew up with. This is not okay. And I spent two days like traumatized. I was like, this is like, if this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, I don't think I can deal with this. It's way outside of my English kid grid. I need some sort of frame of reference. And so for a whole like two or three or four years, I was like, if it's the Holy Spirit, like count me out. (laughs) I don't want to know because that's outside of my grid. And I dare to guess, and I'm just guessing, and I don't know all of you, but I guess that some of you might have had a similar experience of the Holy Spirit in the past. That a lot of us in our Protestant churches, we've grown up being told lots about God. God who is Father, solid creator. We've been told loads about Jesus, the one who can save us, the one who came to rescue us. And we've been told a lot about the Holy Bible. But we may also have been told that that stuff about the Spirit is just a bit weird and we should keep clear of it. Like I, I met a guy this week who grew up 
in Anaheim, just down the street from a guy called John Wimber. And in the 90s, John Wimber, he taught here at Fuller, and they saw miraculous things happen all around. And his church, which was just down the street from the one in Anaheim, spent 20 years telling him that was wrong and bad, and he should run away from it as far as possible. He said, 40 years later, I've just realized I might have missed out something. There might have been something of God at work through John Wimber. And that's my hope is over these next weeks that we can do a little exploring together. Now, if you're over here on this end of the spectrum and you're like, I'm here with my Bible, I got it, like this is where I am, that's all weird. I just want to say welcome and we love you and no one's going to be weird and nobody's going to pressure you into anything. I'm an English man. I don't have the emotional capacity to hype up anything. I just don't know how to do it, right? <laughs> but equally, if you're over here and you're already like, stop talking, Ben, we need to get to the ministry time, then we're going we're gonna to see God do some stuff. Because I really believe, and I've come to experience in my life, as I've had a grid for it, as people have explained it to me, as people have not been weird and strange, but they've actually just walked through the journey with me, I've come to realize that our relationship with the Holy Spirit is one of the most beautiful, life-giving parts of being a follower of Jesus. And so that's what we want to talk about. So we're going to have our reading for this morning. Uh, Sadia is going to bring it to us. It is from Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 1. So if you have a Bible or a phone, a bit of papyrus, a scroll, I don't know, whatever you brought with you this morning, then Acts chapter 2 from verse 1, we're going to read the story of the very first church as it got full of the Holy Spirit. The reading is from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us, each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? 
But some made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Great. Thank you, Sadir, for reading that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is alive and speaking to us. Thank you that it gives us the very grid that we need in order to explore the Holy Spirit. And so speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the context is this. Jesus has come to earth. He's died. He's risen again. And he's now ascended into heaven. But before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said to his followers, I need you to wait in Jerusalem. Hold on, he says in Luke 24, because I'm going to send you what my father has promised you. Stay until you've been clothed with power from on high. And so you've got this kind of group of the uh, the very first ever church, men and women, young and old. They're in a room together. People think, theologians think it was probably the upper room where the, the last Passover meal was held, where the last supper was held. And they're waiting, probably freaked out, to be honest, because the Romans are pushing in on them, the Jews are pushing in on them, Jesus, who is their very hope for a new kingdom, a new political reality to free from Jewish and Roman oppression, has gone, and now they're just stuck on their own. And so they pray, come Holy Spirit. They knew, they waited, because in John chapter 14, Jesus had said to them, "Um, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, will teach you all the things and will remind you of everything they said. And so as they they gather and, and they pray and they wait, it says the Holy Spirit comes into the building. It's like a heavenly roaring wind suddenly starts to rattle like the doors and rattle the furniture and they're in the middle of it and this power starts to flow through the building. And it says that like tongues of fire start to rest on every different person as the Holy Spirit fills them. And miraculous things start to occur all around them. So what does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? Because this is a thing that Christians talk about a lot and I think we always are very clear about it. 
The first thing I think that it means to be full of the Holy Spirit, which is really nice and straightforward, is that to be full of the Holy Spirit and to be a Christian are actually the same thing in many respects. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul actually says, nobody can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. When you, if you're a Christian today, if you gave your life to Jesus, if you, if you did that, it wasn't because you just thought some clever thoughts and you put two and two together and you're like, this is my new spiritual philosophical reality. That's not what being a Christian was. You became a Christian when God opened your eyes by the Holy Spirit to his reality, to his truth, to his love for you. So the good news is, is that if you're here and you're a Christian, you will already have God's Spirit available to you. You already have God's Spirit living within you, right close next to you. But, it seems, there's more. Ephesians 5 says this to the church. Go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Elsewhere, Paul says like this. The Holy Spirit is given without limits. You can have more of a relationship. I've been married to my wife, Laura, for 15 years. And when I first knew her, like, you know, we got married, we didn't know each other that well. But over the last 15 years, I have been trying and sometimes failing to get to know her better and know more what she likes, to hear her voice better, to try and appreciate the ways that she needs to love and the things that she wants to say to me. And it seems that the same is true for the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you already have the Holy Spirit, but there is more. There's always more of God's love and his presence that's available. And it's the presence of the Holy Spirit that I want to speak to you about for a few minutes. Have you ever been in one of those moments where you felt God so very near to you? I remember being about 15 years old and first going into my first ever worship conference where people like Tom and Ben were leading, like thousands of other young people. And I remember somebody praying, you know, come Holy Spirit. And suddenly, out of nowhere, I just remember being overwhelmed by this sense of God's love for me, about his affirmation, about his forgiveness. It was almost like my eyes had become open to something that I I knew to be theoretically true because the Bible told me it was true. But suddenly, it was actually true here in my heart, and I wept, and I wept. The presence of God is, is a beautiful thing. Sometimes, you know, you might have felt it up on a mountaintop. It's this big hill outside of the university town where I went to as an undergrad. And from the top of it, you could see for like 20, 30 miles in every direction. And I'd go up late at night, and I would just praise, and I would pray. And so often I would sense like this God the Father, God the Son, coming so near that I could almost touch and taste and feel it. Maybe you felt that in a time of worship or a time of prayer, a time of silence and solitude. The truth is, though, feeling the presence of God, knowing the presence of God, actually takes a bit of work. I'm so grateful for people like Pete Scazzaro, John Mark Comer. Those are beautiful, wonderful authors at the moment, writing about what it means to practice the presence of God. Because I don't know about you, but it would feel really nice and straightforward to me as if I could just go about my life, be really busy, and God could just flash me up some neon lights whenever I need them, right? Just take a left down the street, take a right, don't do that, that's gonna go badly. That would be great. But it turns out that that is not really how God speaks to his friends. Uh, We have a great friend here at Vintage called Mike Palavacci. Some of you know him and 
Uh, he was made hugely instrumental in my life in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Mike Pilavachi says, if you want a summary of the Bible about how God draws near to people, he says this, God shouts at his enemies. He's pretty brutal and he's pretty clear with his enemies. But God whispers to his friends. Why does God whisper to his friends? It's because he wants them to draw close to him. But what the Holy Spirit comes to do is to bring that sense of beauty and intimacy in our relationship with God. Something which two human beings can, can't even really share, it's so deep. Even in a husband and a wife, or a father and a son, or a mother and a daughter, he can't share it because the Holy Spirit wants to bring that. And that's true throughout the Bible. Really much, if you look in 1 Kings chapter 19, there's this prophet, he's a guy called Elijah, and he's like burnt out, and he's angry, and he does, he's frustrated, and he says, God, I want to meet with you. And God says, cool, okay, come up the mountain, come up the top of Mount Horeb, which is where Moses got the Ten Commandments. And he goes up there, and it says in 1 Kings 19, then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went and stood at the mouth of the cave. So often, we want God to shout, to scream, to tell us what to do. And God is just whispering, waiting for us to be quiet, to be still enough to draw near, to meet with him. And when God does meet with us by his presence, it is such a beautiful, life-changing thing. About three or four days before Easter, before we had our first service here, we invited people to come and pray. And John Sidropoulos and Victor and Carla, they led us in a time of inviting the Holy Spirit to come and fill this building, to anoint it for all that God wants to do with it. And we, a bunch of us, we stood up on this stage. It had its carpet down for about five minutes, and it was really dirty. But we, we stood, and, and John invited us to proclaim over this building the things that we wanted to see God do over the years to come. And as we stood in a big circle, I just felt the Lord just put into my mind the words of, of a prophecy in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 37. And it's all about you know, dry bones about death, and about the prophet prophesying life to come back into things that are dead, breath coming back into things that have died. And as I stood there, I just thought, there's something about this passage that's for me. And somebody else in the circle said, I think we need to pray for Ben, because Ben's got an authority to preach in this place. We should pray for him. And so I said, well, okay, let me, let me read this for you. And I started to read from Ezekiel 37. Now, being an English man, I don't do emotion if I can help it. Like, I just don't, I just, I'm not the guy who cries in movies. It's just like, it's not me, right? And I started to read these words, and I lost it. <laughs> I completely lost it. It's very embarrassing. I lost it because I suddenly realized that the Holy Spirit was highlighting these very words as to being the anointing and the calling that God has placed on my life. Ben, you need to profess that Jesus Christ is Lord in this place. Ben, you need to prophesy that life can come back to spiritually dead things in, through the ministry of vintage. And I felt the overwhelming love and the affirmation of the Father, and it undid me completely in front of everybody else, and I was deeply embarrassed. It was actually really beautiful. So the presence of the Lord comes, and it's an invitation to all of us 
Irrespective of our theological background, even of our personality type, even if we're emotionally stunted like British people, like whatever, <laughs> wherever your background is, God's invitation is come a little nearer because I have something I want to whisper to you. So it's about the presence of the Lord, but it's also something a little bit more than that because the presence of the Lord isn't the end game of what the Holy Spirit comes to do. If you turn back to Acts chapter 2, what you notice is this. Presence comes on this group of people. The power that goes mightily through them. But it's actually not so that they would feel good, not so they'd have a nice time or even have something supernatural to talk about. The presence of the Lord comes upon them in order to anoint them with power so that they can proclaim the good news of Jesus and bring his mission on earth. Right? Okay, just hold with me. Go, come with me. It's going to take, go fast. But Jesus Christ arrives on earth, fully God, but having given up all his power, all his authority, emptied himself, came to earth as a helpless child. He grows up, and at his baptism, it says... Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. That the power of God, the same kind of power that comes on the early church, comes on Jesus. And suddenly, for three years, Jesus has this incredible ministry, right? He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He proclaims the coming of the kingdom of God on the earth. And Jesus says to his followers, okay, this is really great, but this isn't the end game. Because what I have come to do is I want you to have the same power that I have in order that you can continue the same things that I have done. Jesus says, in fact, you're going to see greater things than I've seen. Now, that's pretty scary if you think about it. But why? Because this is what the kingdom looks like. Why did Jesus heal people? Well, it seems like partly because he just had incredible compassion for them. Because the kingdom of God is about love. It's about beauty. It's about restoring the creation to how it was meant to be. That's why he heals some of the most outcast, ostracized people. It seems like partly Jesus does it because actually he wants to show people like this is real. Like, you know, the guy who comes through the, the matting roof comes down before Jesus. And, and Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And everyone's like, dude, you can't forgive someone's sins. Only God can do that. And he's like, yeah, watch this. Get up. <laughs> and the guy walks. So it's like a symbol of the coming of the kingdom. And partly because Jesus is actually modeling the future reality of the kingdom of God. What do we know about one day when Jesus returns? There's going to be no more pain. There's going to be no suffering. There's going to be no sickness. There's only oppression and brokenness in heaven. And so what does Jesus come to do? He comes to model in the power of the Holy Spirit the things that will be true in the future kingdom right here now. Now, it's super cool that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. But have you ever thought, like, how many people did Jesus actually interact with in his life? I don't know. 10,000 maybe. I don't know. 50,000, I don't know. And there's no doubt that Jesus, a man, fully God, fully human, full of the Holy Spirit, transforming the world around him, was pretty earth-shattering. But it's absolutely amazing to think that that isn't the end of God's story because what God actually said was, I want to fill my church with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and so that the whole world can see the good news of Jesus. One, one savior of the world full of the Holy Spirit is pretty cool. But what about like a billion followers of Jesus full of the same power? It's a pretty exciting idea. And that's ultimately, I believe, what the Holy Spirit comes to do. Comes to anoint the church for the mission that it's called to do, which is to point people towards Jesus and towards the future kingdom that he comes. 
It's incredible. And sure enough, you see it in the early church. They're waiting around. They're scared. They're lost. They've got no idea. The Holy Spirit comes on them, and what does it say? It says suddenly they can speak in other languages. And it's not like you know, they, can speak in friend, uh, they can speak in the gift of tongues. Like they can literally speak other human languages, like French or Italian or you know, Aramaic or you know, American, which is like British but slightly different, or you know, whatever, a joke. Um, you know, they can speak all... You didn't laugh. You're like, oh, dear. Out. <laughs> like they can speak in other languages. Why? So that they can proclaim the kingdom of God. And so they go out on the streets of Jerusalem. And there are all these people gathered together from all over the Near East for this festival. And suddenly they can hear the good news of Jesus in their language. Peter, who is this guy who I love deeply because he always messes it up. Like he messes everything up. If, whenever Peter speaks in, in the New Testament, you should watch it because it's always, almost always funny because he's almost always putting his foot in his mouth. So Peter always says the wrong thing. The Holy Spirit comes on Peter. Peter walks out the door, starts preaching the good news of Jesus. What happens? It says thousands of people give their life to Jesus. Now, I don't think it was that Peter got a message from God. Okay, here's your script, Peter. Go stand in the middle, read the script. It's going to be great. Watch this. That's not what happened. The Holy Spirit came on Peter. He realized that the power of God was at work in his life. He steps out in the middle of the marketplace. He opens his mouth, which has naturally been a disaster, and supernaturally, the whole world is transformed around him. That's exciting. And that is what the ministry of the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit anoints the church, points it at Jesus, opens our eyes towards Jesus, and fills us with the power that we need to proclaim the future kingdom of the kingdom of God. Is that exciting? <laughs> like, I'm excited by that. Because I don't think that I have any ability to change someone's life. I don't think I have enough power or authority to change the world around me. I've got nothing that can do it except I have the Holy Spirit. I have the power of the Holy Spirit. I have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I know that there's much, much, much more of the Holy Spirit that I have never seen yet. That I haven't even dared to explore because I've been scared and I've been worried and I've been freaked out by weird people. And so I've stood to the side and just dipped my toe in the water. I have this dream that we could be a people who are so full of the Holy Spirit that this city could be transformed. I have a dream that the churches in Pasadena could be so overwhelmed with the power of presence of God that people around LA would just be like, well, we don't even know what to believe, but that has to be the truth that we've been looking for our whole lives. And so just so you know how this works a little bit practically, I want to show you um, a, a video in a moment. Um, last week, Daniel and myself and Lynn and Mauricio, we, we went down to Mexico. And uh, we'd be, we did it because we've been dreaming for a long time about having a partnership where we could go and serve, where we could bring the good news of Jesus to people who, who don't know the good news of Jesus, and we could you know, find places to build partnership and, and also grow a bit in our own discipleship. And so um, we went down, and for two days, uh, we did uh, dental, uh, sorry, optical clinics, and we did medical clinics. And I was there with no uh, medical training whatsoever, with no ability to like, do any optical training, but we just serve and to bless and to try and be helpful. And so Daniel and I, we got to 
to minister to a lot of people over two days. Every single person, basically, who came to the clinic, whether they liked it or not, got prayed for by us. We didn't have any Spanish, we had translators, and we just prayed, and we prayed. And it was cool, like for a day and a half, we just, we prayed for a lot of people, we gave some prophetic words, uh, nothing like super astonishing things happened, but it just felt good, it was amazing to be able to bless some people who had literally nothing. But on the second day, about the lunchtime on the second day, a, a woman had, was there in the, in the uh, medical clinic, in this really broken down old church which had no water, no electricity, no, nothing. It was just right out in the edge of this community, right out in the desert, basically. And this woman came and she went to see the doctor and the nurse and she said, look, I've, I've seen four doctors and I've been trying to get pregnant with my husband for 10 years and I've been told it's probably never gonna happen for me. I'm just desperate. Can you do anything? And so the doctor and the nurse, they started praying for her and they invited the Holy Spirit to come. They had the gift of tongues. So they started just praying over this woman. And then after a few minutes, they'd already done you know, blood tests and urine tests. They were like, well, we don't, we don't, there's nothing else we can do. We just have to pray for a miracle. So then they passed her through to Daniel and myself and a couple of the, the, the local team. And we did, did the same. We were like, okay, Holy Spirit, like, just come, do something. We need a miracle in this place. And, and I didn't know what was going to happen, but I could sense that like, something was happening. You could see in the woman, like something was going on. And out of the corner of my eye, like, the, 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 the doctor started running across the church I was like, this is really weird, like, what's going on? And so she ran up to us, and, and right as we were in the middle of praying, and she just went, she's pregnant! I was like, no, hold on a minute, like, we haven't finished praying yet, like, how do you know that? That's just a prophetic word. Like, and she literally held up the pregnancy test in her hand and went, we just took this, she's pregnant. We just took this. This is, just in case you think I'm making it up, this is the interview that we filmed, like, one minute later after we'd stopped crying and running around um, the room. Uh, why did you come to the clinic today? She came because she was seeking for a, a study because they told her she had cyst. Yeah. Um, and you've been trying to uh, have a baby for some time? Has estado tratando de conceder un bebé por mucho tiempo, sí, por cuánto no, tiempo? Por 10 años que yo soy casada. She has tried for 10 years. She's been married and she's been trying Gloria for Dios. 10 years. Yeah. And today uh, we were able to pray with you and uh, what happened today? Ahora pudimos orar por ti. ¿Qué pasó hoy? Que ustedes that God called and told us that she was pregnant. Amazing. It's wonderful. It's maravilloso. Gracias a Dios. Thank you, God. She gives lots of things. He does miracles and greatness. When we serve him. God is the one that makes the miracles when we serve him.
the guy who um, is in the black hoodie, that's her husband, who came racing down out of the fields after work because he didn't know and he just found out. Um, it was just unbelievable. Now, I don't know why she got healed and the other very large number of people that we prayed for didn't necessarily get healed in the same way. I don't have that piece of information. But I do know that people were really praying and asking the Holy Spirit to fill that lady and that something miraculous happened. But I finished just with one thought, which is this. I almost missed that entirely. <laughs> because by the middle of the second day, I was really tired. Um, not because I was sharing a room with Daniel, but I just was really tired. And we'd prayed for so many people that by the lunch break of the second day, I was like, I need to go down and lie down somewhere. And so there was this little cubicle in the corner of the room where people were being seen. It was just some sheets hung up. And so um, as everyone else carried on, I went and lay down on this little camp bed that was in the corner of the room, and I just went to sleep. Like, after about 10 minutes, though, the physiotherapist came and he was like, hey, Ben, like, get off my bed. I've got to see some people now. And so I got up and I walked back into that room exactly at the moment when that woman came through to be prayed for. If I had slept for three more minutes, I'd have missed the whole thing and I'd have just had to tell you the story from Daniel or someone else. But what it, it, it made me realize is that all of this ministry of the Holy Spirit actually involves us. It's an invitation. It's an invitation into the supernatural power and presence of God. And it's totally up to you whether you take it. 